0: Aliens of flying saucers, flying saucers.
1: This is all in a loop. Hey, greetings, salutations, and welcome to the 83rd episode of Two Writers Slingin' Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to comics to novels to horrors to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Doug Donovan the fantastic investigative reporter for the Baltimore Sun, and a man whose recent work on the impact of America's opioid nightmare has been so freaking good, even Chuck D tweeted it out. And making this one particularly fun for me is a shared history. Doug and I both started the University of Delaware student newspaper, The Review, and during Doug's time as editor, he actually suspended and demoted me. We'll go over that one, as well as an insider's look at the life of one of America's top investigative scribes. All right now, on Two Writers, Sling and yang. All right, Doug. First of all, um, thank you for doing this. Obviously, I appreciate it. Sitting in front of me, which I did text you the other day, is an index card written by you (laughs) in the year 1993, I believe. In your handwriting, I believe it says, Revoke final editing privileges for one month, remove Jeff from the managing position for winter (laughs) and one month of spring. This includes pay. And then. Print a correction. And my, my question for you, Doug, because I remember this vividly, is do you remember what happened? Yes, I do remember what happened, of course.
2: I, I guess I was like in my senior year and one extra semester after being editor in chief. We need to oh, say, the up University up the of Delaware newspaper, The Review. You know, a lot of school universities have their newspapers and ours was pretty good. You know, I thought we did great work. A lot of great people came out of it. So there was a high standard to meet. So there's a lot of pressure being editor-in-chief, and I do remember, you know, it's the first managerial role you're really sort of thrust into in a professional setting. I mean, I managed, like, some pizza stores in the summer. That's about it. And so what what you had done, if you don't remember, Karen Levinson was the features editor for the newspaper, and she had edited a story of yours, or she dared to edit a story of yours, more than you would have liked. And we've all been there from the reporter side of things. And, uh, you know, you were a very good writer. I don't remember what her editing was like, but you were not happy with it. I think you initially just wanted to pull the story all together. And then we used to post up the page. We'd print out the pages and wax them onto these, you know, newspaper broadsheet size, um, sheets that we would then send to the printer. And those would be what they used to make newspaper. And, There was a rule. Once it was in the box, everything was in the box and the top was closed and was being handed off to the printer. Nothing was to be changed because it had been double checked and triple checked, you know, on these long boards where we'd lay out all the pages. And, uh, you had taken an X-Acto knife, I believe, and cut out your, (laughs) cut out her byline, waxed it and then waxed it over your byline so that the story read with a byline of by Karen Levinson. (laughs) And you had done it after the pages, I guess, had gone out, maybe in the stairwell? Yeah. That I don't know. I don't
1: forget the details of that. I snuck in when nobody was there. I <laughs> put my put her name on top of mine. It was just hilarious. I mean, it was hilarious at the time, too. But
2: I had to like maintain some sense of like managerial authority, even though inside I was kind of cracking up about it. Oh, so then the paper comes out, and there's the story story
1: and it's by karen levinson i don't remember what the story was about do you yeah it was about um i went to times square for for new year's and i wrote a piece about being in times square for new year's and um yeah the funny thing is i don't even remember this so she was livid and rightly so and she threw a chair across the newsroom (sighs) and um, i remember that she was so mad and then years later i actually i saw her on facebook and i apologized to her on Facebook. And she immediately oh, blocked my. me. Wow. <laughs> Man, holding the grudge. She was right in her yeah. anger, though. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Before I get into modern day, the other thing I was thinking of with you and Delaware and back in the day is you and I attended a job fair, the Philadelphia Daily News Enquirer, and we snuck into the newsroom. Oh, yeah. Do you remember this? That's right. Yeah. We had our
2: like package of clips and a cover letter. So
1: didn't we go around and just put them on editor's desks, right? Not only that. We had, um, we had a bunch of post-it notes and we put them on top of the pat, our packets and we wrote, okay. you should check, you should check out this guy. He's really good. And we, and we did a fake, <laughs> a fake signature that you couldn't read. Uh,
2: <laughs> I do remember that now.
1: It's pretty brilliant.
2: Yeah. Um, I ended up working for the Enquirer right out of college. So I don't know. Maybe that was what got me that, or maybe it was the time when they mistook me for a black journalist. When I was a finalist for an internship, a minority only internship.
1: Do you remember that? Is that true? No. What happened?
2: Yeah. I applied. There was no internet back then and I applied for like, right? I mean, that's 92. Yeah. And I was looking for a winter internship. I called the inquirer and they're like, well, there's a deadline coming up for a copy editing internship. Just send your stuff to this address, blah, blah, blah. Nobody mentioned anything about it being minority only. And I (laughs) submitted it and got a call like you're a finalist. So I got a suit. I got a rental car. I drove up to Philly to take the Knight Ritter copy editing test. And I walk in. I'm like, not that it's a big deal. I didn't care. I was like, the only white guy there. It was all black women and Doug, you know, and, uh, I was like, I was like, oh, this is, that's, that's great. You know, this is good for the, for the business and whatnot. But we had strict instructions not to leave this room and everyone left the room at some point. And I'm still sitting there thinking like, well, I got this locked up. Everybody's left. I mean, they told us not to leave. And then um the guy who ran the program, I think he was like the international copy editor or copy editing desk, national, international copy desk chief or something like that. Back when newspapers had international desks, comes down it was, you know, an African American gentleman and the look on his face, I just knew right away, like something, I was not where I was supposed to be. He's like, I'm really sorry. I don't know how this happened, but this... Big mix up. It's a minority only internship. Uh, we're really sorry. Blah, blah, blah. You know, you came in under the wire with the deadline and just nobody vetted it as closely as we should have. Yeah. It was pretty funny. I ended up writing a column about it and got a call from the inquiry about it, you know, where in which I said, I defend it like that type of an internship. I was like, newspapers need to have these types of internships to increase diversity because it's still a big issue with newspapers to this day. Right. You know, we just right. don't have enough diversity in the newsroom. So I was not hurt by it in any way. You know, if anything, right. I supported it through my column and they were very grateful about that. I don't know if that helped me get a job there. Who knows?
1: I just want to say when I was at the Tennessee in my first job, um, my sports editor made a deal with me. He, His name was Neil Scarborough. And he said, if you work the NABJ, the National Association of Black Journalists, three-on-three basketball tournament, I'll let you go into the job there. So- he uh, I worked the <laughs> tournament and the next day I'm at the NABJ job fair, just bouncing around from booth to booth, the only white person attending this job fair. And um really I actually made a ton of connections. A ton of connections sure. from that job fair. Yeah, didn't get a job, but you know, these things happen. Let me ask you this, since we're talking old school yeah. before I get into your specific stories. Here you and I were were these two young and we're hungry, and you know, we're sneaking into newsrooms and we're doing whatever we can to get into the business. And now we're 25 plus years removed from being those kids. Has it been worth it?
2: For me, it's been totally worth it. I mean, I don't know what else I was going to do at that point. You know, I was first person to graduate college in my family. I graduated before my brother and he was older than me. You know, my dad was a, you know, he worked the ground crew at Philadelphia International Airport for 25 years. And my mom was like a short order cook at a restaurant and, you know, that I worked in growing up. That was not the life I wanted. It's not the life she wanted for me. It's, you know, it's hard stuff, hard work. So, I mean, getting to write for a living and get paid for it still all this time, it's the one thing I always think about that fuels like my gratitude and my appreciation for what we do. Like sometimes it's a slog, sometimes like a complete hack, you know, writing like a daily story that needs to be written. But it's, there's also moments where it's very, you know, it's like an art form. It's great to write a really short, bright sort of the art of writing brights and great headlines. And like, I still get a I still get a jolt out of those things, you know, especially when I'm driving like when I'm driving the ideas and when I'm pushing, you know, doing the writing and, you know, I, I'm not one to really sit back and take assignments. I don't really like life like that. Like if i <laughs> If I had an editor who was like really aggressive with giving me assignments, I'd go crazy. So I've always been the one driving the bus essentially. So yeah, I think it's been worth it. I get paid to write for a living and go out and meet interesting people. And like, I remember uh, a lawyer at the Philadelphia, a lawyer of, uh, when I covered criminal courts for the Philadelphia Inquirer in like suburban Philadelphia. And I was covering this really strange trial about these guys that hit these three 20 something year olds who had killed this. Dalmatian, Duke the Dalmatian. It was my first front page story on the Philadelphia Inquirer. Biggest story I'd ever covered at that point. And, um, this lawyer was like, you have the best job in the world. Like, and I always thought like these prosecutors and these defense attorneys had such cool jobs. He's like, no, you got the best job, man. You get to get the front row seat on all this crazy stuff and you get to write about it. You know, it's just such a great job. And I always remember him saying that. And I always just remind myself that I get paid to write for a living.
1: Is the newsroom still a place number one, how often do you even go into the newsroom? And does the you know, like I used to love the newsroom. I used to love the Tennessee and newsroom. I used to love going down sure. and actually watching the paper being printed. Uh I love seeing my byline in print on a on a newspaper. Like, do those things yeah. still exist? Is does, does the newsroom still feel like a newsroom, like a hub of activity? Is it I don't know, is it still there?
2: Absolutely. Uh, you know, the Baltimore Sun just moved and created a whole new newsroom that's more suited to the size we are now. I mean, we were in a building that we'd been in for 75 years when it was built for like, you know, a news staff of probably 500, you know, and I think we're probably down to a 100 now. So we have a much tighter, smaller, but modern newsroom, you know, and it's uh, it feels that way again. It reminds like I went into the Minneapolis Star Tribune a couple years ago. I was in town for something else, and uh, their newsroom was really cool. I I got that same feeling there that I now get from our new newsroom. It's it's designed in a really interesting way, and it's got all the modern acriment, um, like stand up desks and uh, you know free coffee. That's all that matters. Stand up <laughs> desks and free coffee. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we still have a, a pretty vibrant newsroom. I go in every day. I can work remotely when I need to because I've got three kids. So, you know, they've been very good about letting all of us do what we need to do to work remotely. You know, we're all equipped with laptops and iPhones so we can work mobilely and in the streets and then across the city. But, you know, a lot of people still come to the newsroom every day. I tried to leave journalism, but I just couldn't. I just, I left the sun and then I came back to the sun, trying to try different things. Uh, but it was all, I always stayed journal, in, in journalism, just freelance. And then for AOL and a couple other publications. And I came back to the
1: newspaper just cause I really missed it. I'd forgotten that you went to AOL patch and I, there was a time. So AOL patch for people who don't know is AOL started up these basically community online newspapers all over right. America. And there was a time where I thought, oh, this is a really, really good idea. Uh, you went to work yeah. for them. It did not work. Why did AOP hats not work? You know, it,
2: it was too big. It really, I mean, they went up to 750 sites and the business reasons behind things they say, like we need to get, you know, national scale and things, words like that. I don't get like we had uh, about. 40 sites, 48 sites in Maryland, and I managed 12 in the Baltimore region. So right off the bat, I had like a bigger suburban staff than the uh, Baltimore Sun or any other news organization in Maryland. I had 11 reporters in Baltimore County, one in the city, and then three in a na- neighboring suburban county. And five of those sites were really great. Like they worked best in small towns with, you know, a municipal uh, structure with a mayor and a council um, where, you know, you had a real sort of municipality to cover. And where we had that, we had a successful site. People were incredibly engaged on it because there really was no daily news service to these little small towns that were booming in certain suburban parts of Maryland. And we were it. And so you would see like mayors and council members commenting on stories. And we were acting with we huge Facebook presidents, presence and great engagement. And we were profitable, um, you know, across many sites, but just not enough to keep the whole thing profitable. And now it still exists and they scaled it way back. And I think it's doing fairly well, but it's mainly an aggregator with some original content. But when we were doing it, I mean, we had some young, you know, digitally savvy kids who were just crushing it. But I mean, the other issue was people were working like twenty four seven because... You know, you essentially you were empowered to own your own new small town newspaper, which was really fun um, if you thought of it that way. It just, you know, you had to do at least like six, seven posts a day to keep your engagement numbers up. And then Ariana Huffington got involved when Patch um, or when AOL bought the Huffington Post. So there was a lot of turmoil at the top, like the original guys that started it. Um, I think Ariana started getting too involved and, you know, her baby is Huffington Post. And it kind of, it looked like it was going to build into this, like we would be this local newswire that would feed up into the national desk, which would be the Huffington Post, which seemed like a pretty good idea too. But at the scale we were at and the hundreds of sites that weren't profitable, they just had to, they had to take some action. I still think it could have. I don't know why they didn't keep it within AOL and just chop it down to 300 sites because the sites that we had were really doing well.
1: Before we continue with two riders singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter Casey, who lately seems a little bit remorseful. Casey, what's wrong?
0: I don't know. I was just thinking about my life's greatest regret.
1: Hey, you didn't know Fluffy was allergic to broccoli.
0: No, it's not that. I was just thinking back to my time in camp with the Birmingham Stallions.
1: You were in camp with the Birmingham Stallions? Of the USFL?
0: It was 1983. I had been a second-team All-American kicker at Alcorn State, and the Stallions gave me a chance. It was me and Scott Norwood in training camp, and it came down to hitting a 50-yard field goal in a scrimmage. My leg cramped up. The kick wobbled. I missed. And since then, my life has been hell.
1: And Scott Norwood?
0: Scott Norwood goes on to miss that field goal for Buffalo in Super Bowl 25. That should have been me. 47 yards, I hit that. Easy. Then I go on to a long career, probably make the Hall of Fame. Instead, I'm best known for killing a cat.
1: Well, at least you have your own Stallions jersey.
0: Sadly, I don't.
1: Oh, man. Well, here's the good news. 503 Sports makes the best throwback jerseys anywhere. XFL, World League, Arena, Canadian, and the USFL. All you have to do is go to 503-sports.com and you'll have a Casey Perelman Birmingham Stannins jersey in no time.
0: Thanks, Dad. I still should have made that kick.
1: December 27th, 2018, so not that long ago, you wrote a piece, and actually, it's kind of funny. I saw this, someone tweeted it out, and I was like, oh my God, it's Doug Donovan. It was, um, as Maryland's opioid crisis rages on, so does the grief of the families left behind to mourn. I'm just going to read your lead real quick, which is, uh, when Ashley Mooney-Naglieri Learned last winter that her husband was homeless and using heroin again. She got into her car and cruised all night through his Highlands town haunts, shouting Nick out her window and stopping to peer into parked vehicles. I had heard he was sleeping in cars on Eastern Avenue, she said. She had heard right. Shortly before dawn that cold January morning, Mooney Nagliari found her frostbitten husband in the trunk of an SUV. He said he wanted help, said Mooney Nagliari, a Baltimore County Public Schools employee. He didn't want to live like this anymore. Over the next three months, Nick Naglieri did his best to get help, detox, methadone, and rehab. But on April 3rd, the 33-year-old former mailman and father of two boys was found dead with a needle in his arm. The cause, according to the medical examiner, was accidental fentanyl overdose. She so wrote this really, 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 really freaking terrific story, sort of about the oh, opioid the o- opioid tragedy going going down in your state. How did this even come to be, this piece?
2: Well, first I wanted to say, like, when you talk about Chuck D from Public Enemy retweeted my story, which was like a thrill. I love, I love Public Enemy. Um, my friend Alec McGillis at ProPublica had posted the story and he has lots more followers than I do. And then Chuck D retweeted his post. So I was very excited about that. I had originally done a story on like for the, we had an election for governor this year. And one of the main points of his first campaign four years ago was that he would really aggressively attack the opioid overdose issue. And so I did a sort of a standard accountability record piece on everything the state had done and, you know, where their critics say they were failing. And I wasn't able to get a whole lot of the personal toll into that story. It was much more straightforward accountability reporting. So I had all this leftover stuff where I'd, I'd spoken to all these parents who's lost children to the overdose crisis. And if you're a parent, it's just, it's a nightmare or one of them at least. And uh, I just sort of started re-reporting it and took, you know, what I wasn't able to get into the first story to be able to tell the story because the personal toll is just so huge and it's national and Maryland and West Virginia and I think New Hampshire, Massachusetts are really getting hit hammered with it. So You know, it just seemed like we couldn't just do one story, a political story on the crisis. We had to do a real personal look at the impact this is having on families everywhere. And to me, the most amazing like, photo and story, you see this photo of this father and a mother with the stethoscopes in their ears and pressed to the chest of this man who has the heart of their son who died of an opioid overdose. So in Maryland, it's like donations have gone way up because of these opioid overdose deaths. Now, like one out of every three donations in Maryland come from people who died of opioid overdose. And it was like one out of five, three years ago. It's the silver lining, I guess. But, you know, to see like especially the racial dynamics, you've got a white uh, mother and father grieving, crying with the stethoscope pressed to the chest of this uh, African-American man from Virginia. and the the three of them are like best friends now because he was—he is an amazing guy to even have offered to do this and come up. And yeah, you can listen to your son's heart. That kind of stuff is just unbelievable.
1: How did Ashley come to you or how'd you find her? I started calling around to
2: recovery groups, um, like grief recovery groups for parents who had lost children. It's called GRASP and it's been growing all across the country. It's an acronym for like, grief after a substance abuse death or something like that. And um, I started calling around to all of those groups to see if I could you know, find people who are willing to tell me their story. It's not an easy thing to tell. You don't really want to publicize your kid's death as a drug overdose because there's so much stigma still attached to it. But these are very brave people who are willing and thought they could help save another kid's life. So I found Ashley through a guy who I'd interviewed about his kid's loss and then I'd asked if he knew it, and his his son had died like four years ago. And I was, do you know anybody's, you know, this is the kind of grim reporting you have to do sometimes. It's like, well, do you know anybody who's lost a child more recently? I hate having to ask those kind of questions. Yeah, right. Because you know you want something that's more recent. You know, you can tell the story of someone who died four years ago, which in my story was the case of the kid whose heart went to the other guy. Um, but I still needed some someone who was within the, The year 2018. And so that, that was kind of difficult reporting to have to like talk to a lot of people to get their to get them to share these really bad stories and then have to figure out which stories I'm going to use. And I didn't use them all. And that makes me feel guilty. But, you know, I, I always, what I, you know, Bill Marimo from the Philadelphia Inquirer, who was my editor here at the sun for a long time, calls auditing your story when you're done You go back and you call all your sources or you email them. You reach out to them and say, here's a link to the story. Is there anything I missed? Is there anything I screwed up? I'll correct it right away. You know, holding yourself accountable immediately. And part of that process is calling people who I didn't use. Wow. And they're always so gracious, you know, just saying, that's fine. I understand. You know, um, and then there was some blowback on this story. You know, some, some of the family members were not thrilled that Ashley went out and spoke to me about this, but she was determined she's got, you know, her son with this guy who passed away, and she wants him to know that this is a lifestyle that will kill you. So she was I thought she was pretty brave to sort of face up to
1: that kind of scrutiny from family members
2: who did not want this out there.
1: I'm fascinated by two things you just said. Number one, whenever you write a story, you will let everyone who know everyone who you interviewed know it's coming out. Definitely for the bigger stories, you know, like
2: Big sensitive stories, I'll do. If it's like a run of the mill, straight news story, and I know my sources are going to read it, um, I'll just email them the link just to make sure they have it. Um, Bigger stories when you're dealing with like people who aren't sort of in the game, like politicians or spokespeople or government officials, you know, I feel like it's an obligation for us to. Make sure they understand the process so that if they read it and they think, well, that's not right or he misconstrued this or that. And I do that in the fact checking process beforehand. So they pretty much all there shouldn't, there should never be a surprise in a story to the people who are in your story. They should know everything that's going to be in the story. Otherwise you haven't done your job because you haven't gotten the full story from them. You know, you have to bounce off all the criticism you get of that person or you have to say, well, this other family member said, He was not an addict, you know, and you have to figure out ways to make sure everybody knows everything that's going to appear in the story that relates to their part of it. So when you do that beforehand, then those calls afterwards are usually fairly perfunctory. You're not, you're just, you know, it's a courtesy to the people who'd spent all this time talking to you and sharing these, it's, you know, otherwise you're just sort of like, I feel like you're parachuting in, getting what you need and leaving and saying, see you later. Whereas we have a role as a, You know, in the community to make people feel like they're a part of the process because they are. So I try to do that, especially with the big sensitive stories like group home stories with foster kids, anyone who's shared those types of stories with me. I always make sure they have the link and that they get printed copies. You know, I'll drop printed copies off at some people's houses if they weren't able to get them or if they need more, or I'll mail it to them.
1: When you reach out to someone like Ashley and here's a woman, no. she was married and she had her husband and he was a postal worker and they had two kids and then he found dead with a needle in his arm. How do you interview someone like that and get what you're looking for without sort of violating, you know, it's like interviewing in a way is sort of a game, right? Where you're trying to get something oftentimes and they're holding back and you're trying to get something and they're kind of holding back. Or when you're interviewing someone who has experienced loss like this and trauma like this. Yeah. How do you sort of go about it without, I guess, violating a certain code that is often violated in journalism, whether we like it or not?
2: I I think if you're honest from the very get-go about what you're doing and you've gotten somebody to sort of trust you, either who introduced you to this person or if they're the first person you've spoken to, to gain their trust, you know, you just fully explain to them everything that you're trying to do and why you want to do it and you know that it's difficult for them to... Talk about this, but that it's also important. Um, at least we think it is in a way you got to convince them that it's important to shine a public light on these circumstances, the overdose crisis, the addiction crisis, and that, you know, maybe something good can come of their pain. And it sounds like a sales pitch when you say something like that, but I find that afterwards it's, you know, it's like writing obituaries. You think, you know, who would want to talk about their loved one dying like, the day after, you know, you call and you're just very matter of fact about what you're trying to do and be empathetic. And, you know, if you're genuine about it, that's usually not an issue. If you're just sort of a snake oil salesman, you know, I think people have a pretty good idea of when that's happening.
1: You know, she's driving around town, shouting out Nick out her window and stopping to peer into parked vehicles. So when you're interviewing someone in this sort of circumstance, do you have to say to her, you know, she might say, you know, I was, I was driving around and yeah. you're saying, well, what were you saying when you were driving around? Mm-hmm. Or I was yelling my husband's name. Were you saying Nick or were you saying Nicholas?" blah, blah, Like, do you go that detailed while interviewing someone?
2: Yeah. And you know, I do. Um, you know, a lot of times people sort of gloss over things that you need to see, dig into and that's where the good details are. You know, they don't know how to tell a story necessarily. They don't know what a good detail might be for you as a writer. So you just got to keep, you know, Digging, I, you know, I wish I'd, I don't think I got the make of the car, but I felt like I was pushing so far with her that it didn't matter at that point. Like I didn't really care. And I don't even know that I would have included it, but that would have been nice to have. You know, I would have gotten like the color of the car. What kind of car was it? You know, like, but I would ask it in a way that's more conversational. You know, like, can you tell, like, what kind of car do you drive anyway? Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, yeah, you just got to keep digging down and getting more details and having people go back over it. And it's honest to say, but it's the right thing to say is for your own purposes, like, look, I don't want to get anything wrong. I really don't. I want to make sure I tell your story without any factual errors. So it's really important for me to understand like timelines and, you know, who, what, when, and where, and why, and explain that to them. Then they get that what you're trying to do is tell the truth of their story without not having to make any assumptions. Cause when you get back to writing, if you're making assumptions, you're obviously
1: making, you're gonna make a mistake. You can make an ass out of you and me.
2: That's right. (laughs) And I think that's that's usually what I do when I'm interviewing people. I just tell them, look, I don't wanna screw anything up. This is an important story. I wanna make sure I have all the facts and details right just so I can, you know, as I'm writing it, I the more I know, I won't use all this, but the more I know, um, it'll be better for me to make sure I don't make any mistakes.
1: Yeah. Actually, one People thing I feel like I've learned, to that. I've, yeah. I've learned over the years that I didn't know, certainly when we were in college and, and even after is it's okay to sort of break like the third wall, for lack of a better term, and be like, I want to know whether you were drinking a Coke or a Pepsi. I don't just want it to drink right. soda. I want to know. And it's right. okay to say this is going to sound stupid, but details right. just really make a story. And do you remember if it was a Coke or a Pepsi? I, right. I think that's fine. Don't you?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know what, You know how to time it properly. It's not like she's going to tell me, you know, I found him in the back of the car, you know, or like, you know, so I'm walking around with coffee because it's freezing out. And then I see him in the back of the car and I'm like, Nick, I'm not going to stop her and be like, so you said you had some coffee. What kind of coffee was that? Did you get a Dunkin' Donuts? I might go back to that later, but I'm not going to do it in th- at that moment. Typically, you know, you got to pick your. You know, when you do those things so that the person knows you're not just, you know, you're more empathetic if you know, you know, go back over it. You know, like, did you, you stop for coffee before you went out to look for him? Like because it was cold, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you stop? Dunkin' Donuts. Right. Okay. You
1: know, right. Do you have a screw up that haunts you from your career, a reporting screw up or a blunder or something that you learned from oh, yeah, particular? Of course. What's yours?
2: North Carolina. I was working for the news and observer. I was a Durham, North Carolina City Hall reporter and I was working on oddly enough it seemed like an I f it's was those Palm Pilots and I had like a little Palm Pilot um fold out like keyboard and I thought I was Mr. Technology Guru. Like this is cool. And I'm not saying that's why, but I wrote the story from the city council chambers and transmitted it from there. And uh, in my haste, I had merged the names of the most liberal member of the council with the most conservative. So I used the first name was Frank, and the last name I don't remember. But I used, I just called him Frank Robinson, for example. His name was Frank Hyman, but his, you know, I called him Frank Robinson for whatever reason. Whatever reason. And, so, you know, I merged these two council members' names in my haste and just didn't catch it. Nobody did. Um, so that was really embarrassing, but at the same time, it was like, they thought it was hilarious. Like the council members thought it was funny.
1: I was going to say on a scale one to 10 of mistakes, that's like a three. That's not even that bad. eh? That's Yeah. That's not bad at all. Eh,
2: It's mortifying still though, because you got to go face those people and it's just
1: in April, uh, April, 2017, you co-bylined, uh, a pair of stories with, uh, Jean Marbella Dismissed tenants lose, landlords win in Baltimore's rent court. And it's just you actually warned me, you're like, it's really long. And they are really <laughs> long. These really deep, 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 deep dives into Baltimore's rent court and how the stacks seem to be, you know, strongly sort of decked against uh rentals and for landlords. Mm-hmm. Your lead for one of them is uh Alisi Ross thought it was the right rental. The 26 year old Baltimore man liked the look and feel of the two story row house, the 1200 block of Ashburton street. It was convenient to his classes at Coppin State University. Best of all, the landlord was properties allowed dogs. Ross paid 2100 to cover the security deposit in the first month. But when he moved in with his pit bull Nicholas in October, he discovered he had made a mistake. Man, it, this is a great, insanely riveting story. I read both of them. Why'd you write it? Like, how did this even come to be?
2: Well, there's a place called Solutions Journalism Network. It's a nonprofit in New York and we had been talking to them about projects that they might be willing to help fund with different types of, um, grants that would allow us to do some, um, you know, community, um, outreach with stories and actually sort of push forward on the solution side of things. Um, you know, you usually write a story about something that's wrong or broken and then government officials say we need to fix it. And then they either do or they don't. Um, so part of that reporting is typically like, here's the problem story, and here's some solutions. Like I wrote a story after this about what they're doing in Minneapolis to better uh, supervise slum lords and to get them licensed and to rank them according to whether they're a good landlord or a landlord lord. And we don't have any of that, but we do now after we publish the story. So we got this solution out of it. So on the front end, it was like we had a whole bunch of different ideas. Um, rent court was an idea I hadn't been wanting to do for a long time, and I had found a guy who had been able to scrape data off of Maryland's judiciary case search, where you can search every case, civil, criminal, going back like forty years. But the search options through the state portal aren't great. So I found a guy who had scraped all of it and found another guy who was able to query it in a way that we were able to search this database in a way we never had to really quantify what we'd been hearing all along is that judges, you know, typically favored landlords. You know, people would say and complain about that all the time, but it was always anecdotal. But the power of, like, using data and big data sets and being able to explore it in new ways, I mean, that's sort of the transformative part of journalism these days we were able to really look at more cases than anybody had ever looked at before to show and to, you know, we didn't know it was going to show this, but it definitely showed that judges inordinately sided with landlords, even in cases where uh, it was clear that they had found safety hazards, essentially. And uh, so that was, you know, we were able to do something that people had talked about for a long time. Like I said, just anecdotally and use data and then really hit the streets. You know, Jean and I spent a, close to a year getting out to rent court and finding the right people and you know going back and getting recordings of certain judges that we had heard had you know been abusive to tenants and clearly favorable to landlords and really finding the best possible cases we could
1: right and when you're when you're working on a story like this um if this sounds silly because this is what I kept thinking when I was reading it like this it's almost like you guys by writing the story are in a way looking out for people who otherwise are not being looked out for. And I wonder when you're working on a story like this, is that in your head? Should that even be in your head? Are you supposed to be looking out for people or are you just supposed to be presenting something?
2: Yeah. You don't want to go into it with an agenda for sure. Um, you don't certainly want to think, Oh, judges are bad and I'm going to go prove it. Obviously you want to know like, what you've been hearing from tenants and other like tenant advocacy groups have been making these claims for years uh, about how the decks are stacked against the tenants. Um, you know, you want to go into it with an open mind because, you know, you look at some judges are perfectly reasonable and um, good judges. Um, so you want to make sure you go in with, it with a fair mindset. You know, at the same time, I think like the media gets labeled, liberal because a lot of times we're looking at things that affect the poorest among us and we're doing it from the lens of an accountability standpoint, like, all right, here are the rules, here are how things are supposed to work as they're written by the rules, here's a system that's paid for by taxpayers, how is it actually working? Is it actually living up to the rules and the codes of conduct and regulations that are out there? And, you know, when you do that, it doesn't really matter, you know, am I doing it on behalf of people who don't get looked after, like the whole, uh oh, what's the saying, you know, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, like that's the newspaper's mm-hmm. job. Like, I do like that quote, and <laughs> I do subscribe to it when the facts warrant that, and they don't always, um, you know, and I... I I do, you know, you have to be careful about sort of just believing the narratives that are out there because the facts and the data might disprove them. Right. So you have to go right. into things with an open minded mind. And I feel like, you know, I do feel like I see a lot more of like certain narratives getting ahead of the facts in certain, you know, stories.
1: Right. Is that something you have to resist or do you feel like you have been doing this long enough that that is not an issue for you?
2: No, I don't need to resist it. Um, I'm, you know, I don't know, just have always had this mindset. I always, I always say it comes from, like, my personality, that I was sort of the referee in my home. You know, my parents were divorced, so they fought a lot. But I was the guy that always got in between them. I was sort of the peacemaker. Even with my friends who used to, in high school, you know, fight a lot. So I would be the peacemaker. I would always break up the fights, or I'd get guys to talk them off the ledge. I was always good about that. So I was always good with sort of building and mending fences and seeing both sides and trying to get people to – and that's usually what a a good news story is. I mean, sometimes the truth and the facts are, you know, disproportionately going to prove that there's something really bad going on, you don't have to equal that out perfectly with the other side if the facts disprove what the other side is trying to say. I'm not saying you, I believe in a like he said, she said to every story because that's not the case. And a lot right. of my accountability reporting shows that I don't believe that. But the way I work is to proceed from a place that I'm always going to try to be as fair as I can.
1: Right. You uh Final thing I want to ask you about, you wrote a story that I really, really, really loved because uh, it was really different than the other stuff you did. It's called Friday Poker Club Plays Out Hand from yeah. 2007. Lead real quick is 49 rare poker hands hang from the walls of Buzz Chalk's North Baltimore basement. Each is framed and sealed under glass, splayed against white mats inscribed with names of the living and the dead. Some of the hands belong to Chalk, but most belong to his Hamden area neighbors. The oldest is a royal flush of diamonds dealt to Chalk on January 23rd, 1976, One of the most recent is a straight flush of diamonds, nine high, that won George Lopez a pot of plastic poker chips on March 20th, 1999. Nearly every Friday night for more than three decades, Chalk's card club has gathered in his row house basement to play poker at small round tables that bound the circle of friends for 35 years. Whenever the rarest of hands of straight and royal flushes defied the odds and graced the game, Chalk ditched the deck, framed the winning cards, and hung them from the wood-paneled walls, an unconventional memorial to a common manly meeting. Uh, but this, but the rare sightings these days are not of straights and flushes. They're of Baker, Bull, Frazier, Marshall, the regulars who anteed up each week, year by year, player by player. The game is slowly folded. Death has reduced the ranks from 14 to the final pair of Chalk and Lopez. They've all died off, says Chalk, a retired army lieutenant colonel. I love this story. I have no idea where, like, did someone mention it to you randomly? Oh, there's this card game. How do you even find out about this?
2: This was like a guy in my neighborhood when I was living in in the city in this particular neighborhood of Hamden. And I was walking home one night and I happened to look down in the basement and saw these guys playing poker. And this is when there was four or five of them doing it. And, um, when I saw him later, I don't know, weeks later on the street, I said, you know, how often do you play poker down there? And he was saying, we've been doing it for 30 years. I'm like, wow, that'd be a really cool story. And he was like, well, I'll ask the guys, you know, maybe they want to do it. Maybe because he's like all World War Two generation guy. So mm-hmm. they didn't seem all that eager. And so I couldn't really get into the game at that point. And it took me like a year to finally nudge him into letting me do it. Because he kept saying, oh, one guy died. So it's probably not really good for your story. Yeah, And then <laughs> like, I was like, Buzz, I got to do this story. Not to be morbid, but you say there's only three of you left. And even before I could do that. The third one died. And, uh, wow. you know, you go into that basement, it was just amazing. The wall's just covered in these framed, you know, poker hands. It's just really cool. Um, and it just sort of demonstrated this, like, transition in the neighborhood between these, these old Baltimore types who had been there forever and the younger ones like myself moving in and gentrifying and changing these neighborhoods. My favorite part of that story is the end where he's flipping through the mass cards of all of the guys who have died, which was just a great, you know, just a great image of, you know, to tell a story about a card game and then to have it have him going through these other types of cards, mass cards for funerals. I was like, this couldn't be more perfect.
1: I just want to read that real quick. You wrote, uh, as Lopez looks on, chalk flips the mass cards over one by one, like in solitaire. Reading off the names of the players who have died and the dates of their deaths. Bob Baker, November 25th, 1995. Orv Bull, June 1st, 2001. Pete Starnes, May 11th, 2001. Then Chalk pauses, noticing Lopez's focus has shifted to the Orioles-Yankees game on TV. He smiles, flips the next funeral card and says, George Lopez. Lopez protests. (laughs) Hey, thanks a lot. Oh, Chalk says, he's still here. That's great. That's (laughs) so good. That's a great story. Thank you. That's a great story.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Stories like that. You know, they just make the job so much more enjoyable because, you know, like that story is probably framed in many people's houses who lived in that neighborhood.
1: I want to conclude this by saying that, um, here's modern journalism in a nutshell. I read this amazing story. It's great. I love everything about it. And I'm staring, I'm reading on the Baltimore Sun website. And what I'm looking at midway through the story is a photograph of a clogged drain, someone pulling out hair and muck from their drain and it says kiss drain clogs goodbye. There's a new anti-clogging drain device that makes these pesky drain clogs disappear. And if I click on it, I can open and try drain sticks for free. Yeah. So uh oh. 2019, what can you do? In conclusion, I, uh I'm so angry. I feel like you took away my pay. I wasn't able to support <laughs> my family. You, you took away my status. You lowered me from managing sports editor to sports editor. You say you're a great mediator and you, you're the guy who saw I just feel like this is unresolved, and and it, it still hurts in a way. So,
2: <laughs> oh, now come on, you're 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 a big boy, you're a big boy back then. I mean, I remember you writing a column about being a virgin.
1: Yeah, the funny thing is, I wasn't actually a virgin. Is that bad?
2: <laughs> Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Yeah.
1: Well, Doug, I appreciate you doing this. Seriously, it's like old home. Yeah, week thanks, me. It. It's always
2: great to hear from you.
1: I want to thank today's guest, Doug Donovan, for joining me on Two Riders Slingin' Yang. You can follow Doug on Twitter, at Doug Donovan, and read his work in the Baltimore Sun. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slingin' Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the insane MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing i